All right. Well, I'd love you to open your scriptures. Uh, we don't have it on the screen because um, I didn't send any slides through. Uh, but we're going to begin at 2 Kings uh, chapter 22, uh, verses 4 to 11. 2 Kings chapter 22, verses 4 to 11. And really what we have here is a renewal moment. The books have shown us up to this point just a terrible litany of kings who do not do right in the sight of God. They perpetrate idolatry and injustice. And, you know, the fish rots from the top, as it said. And so Israel finds itself stuck in this sort of half-worship of Yahweh, but then this worship in the high places where people are still going and offering to the pagan gods. And so you have this king born, Josiah, and Josiah is part of this renewal moment. So we're going to pick up the story in verse 4, where the king says, Go up to Hilkiah, the high priest, and have him get ready the money that has been brought to the temple of the Lord, which the doorkeepers have collected from the people. Have that entrusted to the men appointed to supervise the work on the temple. Now, interestingly, this had happened 10 10 chapters earlier. There's a king, Joash, and he'd also wanted to rebuild the temple. Think about what is the temple? The temple is the dwelling place of the presence of God. It's a physical manifestation in concrete and stone and wood and jewels of, maybe not concrete, I threw that in, um, of actually where the presence of God dwells. And so Joash had tried to rebuild the disrepair in the temple to make it a dwelling place again of the Lord but actually he'd given the money to, to the, the religious authorities and the religious authorities, because they were corrupt and because they worshipped, yes, they did Yahweh stuff, but also they worshipped on the high places that the money then went AWOL and the place did not get rebuilt and there was no renewal. So they changed tact here. So entrust, have them entrusted to the men appointed to supervise the work on the temple. So it doesn't go to the religious authorities. It goes to guys in high vis with helmets who have got a clipboard, who are supervising the project, the project managers. And have these men pay the workers who repair the temple of the Lord, the carpenters, the builders, and the masons. Have them purchase timber and dress stone to repair the temple, but they need not account for the money entrusted to them because they are honest in their dealings, unlike what happened 10 chapters earlier. Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the secretary, I found the book of the law in the temple of the Lord. Now, what you have to understand here, it's like as if KXC had forgotten the Bible 30 years ago and you kept meeting and doing stuff, yet it wasn't about the Bible. I don't know what you would be doing. But there was this point where when this room was being rebuilt and there was a building project, there's somewhere in a wall cavity, someone found like a a copy of the NIV and, and you're like, my goodness, we've found it again. That's what's happening here. He gave it to Shapan, who read it. The Japan the secretary went to the king and reported to him, your officials have paid them out the money that was in the temple of the Lord and have entrusted it to the workers and supervisors at the temple. The Japan the secretary informed the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book and Japan read from it in the presence of the king. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his ropes. This building project, this task that this group of tradesmen were given leads to not just a rebuilding of the temple, but something bigger, a rediscovery of the Word of God. Now, 
Most of us, when we think about who is the kind of person the Spirit is going to fall on, we probably have someone in our head. Perhaps it's the person who's always down the front worshipping, someone who turns up to all the different meetings. There's sometimes a little bit of an image in our head uh, that we have of someone who is in Australia. The Australians might will know this. I had to translate earlier. We call them sometimes a super spiro. It's like an Australian (laughs) slang term for someone who's super spiritual, but almost a little bit too much so. Like they go from holy to weird uh, or go in between the two. So probably in our heads, we have someone who the Holy Spirit's gonna fall on. It's gonna be someone like that. But actually, there's a really interesting link here in these tradesmen. What we probably don't have in our heads when we think of the Holy Spirit falling on someone is a carpenter with an angle grinder, a mason, someone dealing in, in, in stone. We don't think about people on a building site being the candidates for the Holy Spirit to fall. But what's interesting is if we look at Exodus 33, verses 1 to 3, we actually see that the first person the Spirit of God is given to is actually a tradesperson. Where it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, son of Hur, in the tribe of Judah, and I filled him with the Spirit of God. Why? Given him wisdom, given him understanding with knowledge and all kinds of skills. Why? To make artistic designs for work in gold and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood and engage in all kinds of crafts. Why are these crafts given? Not just so we can do art projects. These are given to build the presence place, the dwelling place of God. So the Spirit does fall first on the builders. Now hold that thought. I want to I tell a story. That's really weird to say that because at the beginning of a sermon, I'm going to tell a story now. Okay, are you ready? I'm drinking from a bottle that uh, Dean, who is here, gave me when I spoke uh, at his uh, church in Perth. And after that, I uh, got on a plane to make the short domestic flight back to Melbourne, which is like over three hours in the equivalent of basically flying from London to Moscow. So just a small domestic uh, plane flight in Australia. And it was sort of the, the last sort of, uh, one of the last planes out. It wasn't the red eye, it was the one before then. And uh, the plane was like absolutely ramped. Like every seat taken except one that was just across the aisle on the right from me. Now, the flight crew got on and you could see they were flustered. Like so many places around the world, Australia's had a shortage of airline staff. So staff was really pressed at the moment. And often airline staff in Australia do these crazy days where they may start in Melbourne, fly to Darwin, go to Perth. begins really early. It's really hard work. And so you could see they've just gotten this plane. They've just made it. There was probably a delay. They get on, they're turning over the plane. And I just felt sorry for them because that's hard work to do, just flying above this continent all day. So I'm ready for the doors to close. And then this woman comes down the aisle and it's very clearly she had an air about her. I don't know if it's my gift of discernment or just she just, just had an air about her. Okay, I just noticed her. And she sat down and we took off and there was an announcement came over the, the uh, speaker and it basically said, uh, look, we're really sorry. We just had a quick turnover of cruise. We've got a problem with the entertainment system. Uh, please bear with us. We're going to reset it. It takes 15 minutes. Lady next to me, ding, presses the button. She wants to speak to someone. And she starts talking to the the stewardess and saying she's not really happy about this. I'm like, okay, it's happening to everyone. It was happening to the girl on my left. She wasn't that unhappy. Uh, She just ate a muesli bar and got on with it. Uh, But uh, it just continued on. And this woman, probably during the flight from from Perth to Melbourne, would have called on the staff at least six times to complain. 
And it just got to the point where literally I could not do anything else except observe this woman continually complaining to the air cabin crew. Now, once we got to about five or six times, this is where things started to get quite weird. Now, what she said, and at this point she wanted to speak to the airline cabin head person, and she called them, this lady forward, and this lady came forward, and she said something to them which, which really got my attention. She said, I have paid for this ticket. And one of the reasons I've paid for this ticket is because your job, indicating to the flight crew, is to actually put me in an eased state of mind where I feel a state of mental relaxation. I'm not feeling that now because my entertainment system's not on. And it's your job to actually make me feel like this. And I'm very, very unhappy. And I'm just like, oh my, you know, let it go. Like the Frozen theme, just singing in my head, let it go, lady. And then I thought, okay, that's got to be it. We're literally coming into Melbourne. I'm just like, let it go, lady. And then finally, she had one more in her. She calls back the uh, airline uh, stewardess's head of them. And, and she basically says, okay, I see what's going on now. That stewardess over there does not have a name tag on. And I think the reason she does not have a name tag on is because you don't want me to know her name. And this is actually a targeted campaign of victimisation that this air crew is doing towards me and this is unacceptable and I want you to do something about it. I, I couldn't believe it. My expectations is, number one, well, let's not crash. And number two, just get me there. Three, if there's a, a biscuit, I'm happy with that. Uh, my expectation is not that... I will be put in a state of sort of zen-like, wonderful feelings by a flight crew who are literally there as modern-day servants to serve me and my therapeutic mental feelings. Now, I realised that this was actually emblematic. This is emblematic of something that has happened, that this woman is, yeah, she's a caricature and we can, and we can laugh at her, but there's a sense where that sort of mentality has crept into all of us. You see, what she thought about was that this wasn't just a plane ride. She didn't just want to get from A to B. She saw that she had paid this money and it wasn't just to go safely from, from Perth to Melbourne. She'd actually paid this money and what she wanted was something almost transcendent, this sense of feeling. And that whole flight crew was actually there to serve her and make her feel good the whole flight and give her everything that she wanted. Anything that went wrong, that's not their problem. So that's not her problem, that's their problem. So she saw them as a kind of platform for delivering her these incredible expectations of these good feelings. Now, I'm on a platform here. A platform here elevates me so you can all hear me. But in the world now, we have platforms. We can press a button and Amazon will deliver something to your door like that. You can press a button and Uber Eats will bring a hot meal to your door. Some guy on a moped goes through the night, brings it to your door. And if it doesn't arrive in a certain time, we start to get annoyed. So this platform mentality where we see a vision of human flourishing in which our individual desires are met and we receive validation by being affirmed and seen by others. This is what a platform mentality is. This woman had it in extreme. She was a bit of an unusual character. But what this is doing is it frames how we see the institutions, organisations and communities of which we are a part. And what happens is people can see these things which have existed throughout human civilization, but we actually see them and we see their purpose in a new way, that what they're there for are as platforms for us, designed primarily to serve our needs. 
Now, what's really interesting is the plane flight revealed more. Because I think in the world, this, we've reached a kind of peak platform mentality. But at the same time, the flight crew was undermanned because the world since the COVID pandemic is starting to hit a point where this incredible well-oiled machine of a globalised world is starting to run ajar a bit. We live in, in a world where money costs nothing, but interest rates are back, cost of living's back, supply chain issues. We have a war in Ukraine. We have impending wars in other places. And the world which seems so smooth and able to deliver your wants in a platform mentality, actually the wheels are starting to fall off a little bit. So our expectations have been raised beyond belief and at the same point where the world's ability to deliver us what we want is actually decreasing. And this is annoying people. This is why, I don't know if it's like here, but in Australia, you go to the train station, there's now signs saying, please don't assault or insult the staff. You know, the baker, there's little signs saying, please treat us nicely, we're doing our best. There is this huge anger in the world when this stuff does not get delivered. Now, what's interesting is, as the plane then landed into Melbourne, as in most places, the flight PA comes on and welcome to Melbourne, where the temperature is this, blah, blah, blah. It happens everywhere. But as the Aussies in the room will know, uh, if you fly many of our airlines, we now have a welcome to country. And a welcome to country is where the flight lands and recognises the traditional landowners, uh, Indigenous landowners of wherever you're landing. In Sydney, it's the Gadigal people, or in Melbourne, it's the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. And so they, they do this, and they read through a little sort of uh, uh, little card of, of different things. And one of the things they say is, we would like to pay our respects and acknowledge elders past, present, and emerging. So I'm sitting there having seen this lady go through this massive tantrum in the air. And then I hear the welcome to country. And what sticks out to me is the respect and acknowledgement of elders. And I thought, hang on, this is weird. Now, I've been with American friends in Australia where they come and they hear welcome to country. And they're like, oh, it's so wonderful that they, they do this public thing to acknowledge elders from the Indigenous community. But it got me thinking, hang on, why do we, in Australia at least, only acknowledge publicly elders when it's from the Indigenous community? When the rest of our culture actually, in a sense, produces, and I think this is true over much of the globalised world, a kind of radical individualism that's often youth-focused, which has no appreciation for elders. We love it when a pillar of the community passes away. We'll talk about them. But our entire formation of how we're taught to live actually does not build elders. And I began to think about this. I thought, what's another word for an elder? Another word for an elder is a pillar. Now, what's a pillar? A pillar is a person of wisdom, strength, reliability and character whose personhood acts as a supportive structure for a community. You don't just live for yourself. You don't just live to have the platform where people deliver you stuff. You're there as a supportive structure for a community. And community without pillars is rubbish. A community with pillars and elders who do their role and do it well is actually an incredibly beautiful community to be part of. So a pillar is a role, but the role falls over and it's an identity. It's a role in an identity, but it falls over if you don't fulfil the role of a, of a pillar. You can be an elder or a pillar, but if you steal money, if, if you're backhanded, if you lie, if you undermine people, if you're corrupt, you're not a pillar. You, in a sense, lose that authority. So pillar is actually an overflow of character. 
It's an identity and it's a role, but it overflows from something who you are within. So I wrote this sentence. Are you ready for this? If you're writing notes, this is me trying to capture this all in one sentence. Pillars build pillars while being pillars. So there's something infectious about a pillar. A pillar is inspiring. You want to be like them. And a pillar only really emerges from a process of formation. Now, what's interesting is in Australian culture, the the Indigenous culture of Australia, there's a definition of what an, an Indigenous elder is. And it says, elders are the spiritual and moral leaders of Aboriginal people and play a tremendous role in the community. Elders are those who teach younger generations and pass on stories and knowledge. Elders are individuals who have a deep connection with their heritage and live their lives by an example of traditional principles, morals and teachings. An elder's central role is to instill Aboriginal teachings in the community. That's a process of formation. That is being part of a chain of tradition where you're passing this knowledge down and you're being formed by the generations before you and it goes forward in the generations. This is why when the plane lands, they say, we pay our respects and acknowledge elders past, present and emerging. There's a chain. This is not just your individual life story where it's about you now, FOMO, you only live YOLO. This is actually about being part of something that goes throughout time. Now, Our society is made up of all kinds of organisations and institutions. And institutions are groups of people who come together to focus their efforts towards a goal of flourishing. And they do this by repeatedly doing the things that they know will lead them towards flourishing. They live out the vision that they're all moving together towards. So what this means is when we join an institution and we commit to it, it shapes us to be the kind of people that it needs for that vision to be accomplished. And what institutions are, in their purest form, are human embodiments of a vision of flourishing that the institution is striving for. Now, this is truest in the institution known as the church. Many people today have this sort of very increasingly loose association with churches. Many people today look for a church which is perfect. Spoiler alert, doesn't exist. And you can see people today looking for a kind of church which ticks all these particular boxes. But actually what we don't see is rather what is a place which will form us into being the kind of person which will help that institution build. KXC is not a perfect church. It's pretty darn good. But if you're looking for a perfect church, you're going to get let down. But what it is is a church, and I've known this church for some time now, It is a church which I love their vision for the kingdom of God flourishing in London. So if you join this church, what they're about, again, second spoiler alert, is they're about forming you towards that vision. And that's what a good institution should be. Now, Yuval Levin, who's an American political scientist, says this of our moment. He says, we've moved, roughly speaking, from thinking of institutions as moulds that shape people's character and habits towards seeing them as platforms that allow people to display themselves before a wider world. We swapped out elders and pillars for celebrities and influencers. We seek a lifestyle versus building a life that is a pillar. And you see, we don't really want all the pillars to go. Our world is an anti-pillar. 
In a sense, we almost have this paternalistic society still today, despite all of our individualism. And we're often insecure and often we're double-minded. And it's at those moments that we actually look for pillars to support us. When something goes wrong, we want to speak to the manager. When something's happening at university or work, where's the HR department? Who can I speak to about this? You want to know in a city like this that the mayor and different people are working to making your city wonderful. And when the pillars don't stand up as pillars, we let them know about it. But the problem is when you want pillars, but you don't want to become a pillar yourself, this keeps us in a childlike state of little development. And you see, children like a pillar. They like the parent to always be there. Teenagers want the pillar, but they also want to reject and get angry at the pillar. So we want pillars for support or blame. But we need to change our framework of understanding. Now, continuing with the text, turn to 2 Kings 23, verse 1. 2 Kings 23, verse 1. Then the king called together all of the, the what? The elders of Judah and Jerusalem. He went up to the temple of the Lord, the dwelling place of the presence of God with the people of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, God's city, the priests and the prophets, all the people from the least to the greatest. And he read in their hearing the words of the book of the covenant which had been found in the temple of the Lord. Now, where does the king stand? The king stands next to a pillar. Kings tells us earlier, I think it's in four, that this actually was the custom. The king would make these pronouncements next to a pillar. All great moments, which seem like the height moment where someone's on a platform of leadership, behind them is many pillars. Stood by the pillar and renewed the covenant in the presence of the Lord to follow the Lord and keep His commands, statutes and decrees with all His heart and with all His soul, thus confirming the words of the covenant written in this book. Then all the people pledged themselves to the covenant. This is a renewal moment. Now what's interesting though is if we follow the story of the Scriptures, the temple gets rebuilt kind of. There's an argument, does the presence of God come back to the temple when it departed? In Jesus' time, there was a temple, but it was a temple built by another king who was worshipping Yahweh, in some ways Herod, but then was also worshipping other gods and had a foot in both camps. The same problem had continued. And Jesus prophesied, Jesus said, this temple's going to fall. And in 70 AD, Vespasian, the Roman general, comes in, Jerusalem is sacked, temple is destroyed, and it's still like that today. This is why we have a wailing wall in Jerusalem. But we don't live in a time where we now the Holy Spirit to fall on a bunch of construction workers in London who then get on a plane and go and rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. What God's doing in the world at this moment is God is actually building a new kind of living temple. The New Testament vision is not that a building is built in concrete with stone and wood, but it's actually built in the lives of ordinary people who are filled with the Holy Spirit who make up this strange translocational thing called the kingdom of God in the form of the church, an embassy of the kingdom of God. And that's actually built with pillars. So what we need in the church is more pillars. Now what's happening at this moment is we are living in a time of spot fires. We are hearing of the Spirit moving 
in different places, just even being here in the last couple of days. But before that, we have a podcast and we've been contacted by people all across the world who in the last three or four months have had Holy Spirit turning up in various meetings that they've had in small ways, in rural Canadian towns and in in totally uncool churches of like 20 people. God is on the move in our time. And there's a sense that the Holy Spirit is moving, coming to refresh us. But I've got one concern. My concern is that in 2027, I'll be sitting somewhere and I'll be chatting to perhaps another leader. And over our coffee, we reminisce about 2023. Remember 2023, when perhaps we worshiped through the night. Remember 2023, when the Asbury thing happened. Remember 2023, when the Spirit moved in our meeting. Oh, that's right, yeah. That was nice. That felt good for a while. And actually believe that, yes, we need that. But I was talking to my friend Roshan, who is a historian in New Zealand, and we we were sort of flying around New Zealand talking about this, and he, he gave me a new understanding of how awakenings and revivals happen. I was yesterday, and occasionally I come to London, and I, when I'm here, I try and at least go to one of these places where God moved and just pray. And yesterday I went and sat, went to the Barbican. There's no one around. I'm just sitting there at the front of the London Museum. It's closed now, I think. And, and there is the, the monument, which is the memory of when, at Aldersgate, John Wesley's heart was strangely warmed. And I sat there. This funny little man, centuries ago, had this feeling, this sense of the Holy Spirit, just like, like this sense that he was saved and God reached out to him. There's a whole bunch of that stuff that happened before, but here's this young guy and he feels the Holy Spirit. Now, what doesn't happen is that wasn't just John Wesley's nice little moment he had there at Aldersgate. The reason there is this giant metallic sculpture is that that then echoes out through the world like a kind of shockwave. Near my house, There is a small Wesleyan Methodist chapel in Box Hill. And that was built with rocks that were dragged out of a creek by a small group of people. There was like one family from Surrey, hence the name Box Hill. Uh, There's a small town in Box Hill. Anyway, that's an irrelevant point. And... um, and there was another English family and then there was an American guy who was a freed slave and they all end up in this part of the eastern suburbs of Melbourne and then they start meeting on the veranda of one of these families and those memories of what had happened 150 years earlier with John Wesley come to them. And they decide then as part of what God was doing in this ongoing thing that was 150 years later, they actually build this church on the other side of the world. I mean, this was like, Australia was like Mars back then, right? Compared to like England to get there. And you know, I realise this is what my friend Roshan says, is, is effectively what Roshan is saying is, we don't just need the 2023 moment where God moves powerfully and we pray all night and we just feel something. We need a 150 year awakening that changes the lives of your great grandkids. And that's why it goes down the generations. This is why we want to acknowledge the elders, past, present and future, who are going to come in this awakening moment. And there are people in this room who stand on the shoulders of giants, who have deep spiritual authority in your families and legacy going back. And perhaps you've seen it as a burden, but actually at this moment of what happening in 2023 is God is actually wanting to summon that up and you to actually take that and run with it. You see, what's happening in the world at the moment is there's a baton pass. 
If you ever run the 400 relay, I did it at school. It was fun. You got, you got, you got the, the thing and then you were running. But the most dangerous point was when you were handing the baton across. Those little aluminium things, they're very light and they're so easy to drop. There's nothing worse. I still have the sound in my head of the, the baton hitting that sort of running track, that sound. It was like a musical instrument of shame and failure. <laughs> and can I just say, in this country, there was a touch that happened 34 years ago. There were men and women who felt the Holy Spirit in new ways. And for them, what we just did then of prophecy and praying and ministering to people, that was new and it was very exciting. And God did all kinds of things and it changed the spiritual landscape. And I don't think churches like KXC would exist without what happened a generation ago. But what's happening is, as God does, because this is, you know, human life, is that a generation comes to an end. And a generation is coming to an end of leaders in this country. And a generation is coming to an end, particularly in the West, and this is true for Australia and other places, of particularly the baby boomer generation who are often derided, but I actually think have turned up. I think of my parents who've turned up to church and volunteered. My parents weren't in ministry, they worked secular jobs, but they turned up and served and were pillars. But they're retired now. They're getting older. And there's a whole generation. Often I look at at churches and sometimes I speak at different churches, 75% baby boomers, and God bless them. But there's a moment where the pillars are going to have their eternal rest and we will, we will celebrate them. But the question then is asked, who will be the next pillars that pick up the baton and go forward from here? Because if the Holy Spirit's gonna move and if we're gonna be a dwelling place of the presence of God, we need pillars. But the pillars that are built are not built out of wood and stone, but actually built with your life. And what it realises is at this moment, the demonic forces of the world have high places, but the high places are not worship of Astareth or Baal. It's actually where we put ourselves as the individual and our desires above everything else in the world. And we're at a moment where if we're gonna have a renewal and awakening, that stuff has to be torn down. We have to take ourselves as the primary idol off the high places and return to Yahweh worship and actually be part of the rebuilding. So this is why there are people in this room who have been pushing in in the hidden places, in the quiet places. You've been serving and you are pillars. So number one, there are people here who have been pillars and perhaps you feel discouraged because you're not seen, but he who sees in the hidden places sees you. And yes, we've got people up front, wonderful team and wonderful staff who are absolutely brilliant at this place. But there's other people in this room who have helped what's happened here and the presence fall through being pillars. Secondly, there are people in here who need to move from a platform mentality to a pillar mentality. And you've never thought of that. It is darn countercultural, but actually God is inviting you in. I think there's a third group. I think I just mentioned them briefly before. There are people who you've got parents, pastors, youth pastors, maybe an auntie, maybe a great grandmother who lived in another country and prayed and prayed and prayed that that God would bless her family down the generations. And you live in that blessing and favour going down the generations. And you now need to step into all of that prayer. You need to step into the moment that has been shaped for you. And you actually need to realise that the way that you see yourself simply as what the world wants to see us at the moment is, the world wants us in a kind of learned helplessness because people who don't see them at pillars are able to buy heaps of stuff because they don't know who they are. So the structures of this world want you to not know who you are. But this is a moment of stepping into pillars. 
And what goes ahead of the people in the wilderness? A pillar of fire. So we have a pillar of fire going ahead of us at this moment and we need to become pillars. Let's pray into this. Let's stand.